passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors. My name is Kurt, and it's good to have you. And before we dive into our study this morning, I just want to continue to give you a little bit of update on the capital campaign. Uh, we know as we're trying to raise some capital for a few improvements here on Spirit Lake, but most of that is for our Spencer a reconstruction project because we purchased the north side of the North Mall. And our goal is to raise $650,000. And we sort of thought that was all coming to an end last week. And we had raised $517,000. And we're just thankful that God's people have provided that and God's been generous. And then we received the offering and that went up to $542,000 that came in after last Sunday. So um, we may hit the goal yet. So I'm really excited about the amazing generosity of God's people as we're shooting towards that $650,000 goal. Also, we are continuing to work on Thursday nights from 6 to 9 and Saturday mornings from 8 to 11. And I encourage you to go down there, even if it's just for an hour or two. Like when I go down on Saturday, I don't stay the whole time because it doesn't fit in my schedule. But uh, I can at least take an hour worth of drywall buckets <laughs> and move those around. And that's just a, a great thing to do. Now, before we get into this morning's study, I want to ask you guys if you know a, an older movie. How many of you guys remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, a couple Raiders of the Lost Ark fans. Indiana Jones, okay. Well, I'm going to show you a clip from Raiders of the Lost Ark that'll get us set up for this morning's study. In the shape of the sun with a crystal in the center. And what you did was you take the staff to a special room in Tadness, a map room with a miniature of the city all laid out on the floor. And if you put the staff in a certain place at a certain time of day, the sun shone through here and made a beam that came down on the floor here and gave you the exact location of the Well of the Souls, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, right? Which is exactly what the Nazis are looking for. Now, what does this Ark look like? There's a picture of it right here. That's it. Good God. Yes, that's just what the Hebrews thought. Uh, now what's that supposed to be coming out of there? Lightning. Fire. Power of God or something. to understand Hitler's interest in this. Oh, yes. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. In the shape of the sun with a crystal. Well, what do you think? Is the premise of the movie true? That an army that carries the Ark of God before it becomes invincible. If Hitler was able to discover the Ark of the Covenant, would he have become invincible? Well, those are some of the questions we're going to answer this morning when we dive into our study. As you know, we're working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, and we've worked through the first three chapters of that book. And the first three chapters, as we saw, was really all about Samuel about Samuel's amazing birth, about him growing up as a little tiny priest. And then last week we saw how God chose him to not just be a priest, but to be a prophet. God spoke to him so he'd bring God's words to God's people. But as soon as we get to 1 Samuel chapter 4, where we find ourselves this morning, the book stops talking about Samuel, and it begins talking about the Ark of God for three chapters. So three chapters on Samuel, now three chapters on the Ark of God. And in particular, it's going to talk about the power of God. So I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles out, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4, stand out of reverence for the Word of God. You can follow along with your eyes and your copy of God's Word as I read this entire chapter, which we'll study this morning. And the Word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, and they camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines camped at Aphek. 
the Philistines drew up in a line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who's enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Now as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli, now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broke and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. That ends the reading, and you can be seated. This chapter actually divides up into five different sections. The first section is just really the first verse. It's just the background. It sort of sets the, the tone for what's to follow. And then it's the story of two defeats and two deaths. So that's how we'll break the chapter apart as we dive into it. Let's go ahead and begin with the first verse, which is really nothing more than the background. It says this in verse 1. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And if you're like me, you read that and say, that, well, that's nice information, but it means absolutely nothing to me. Well, let me take some time and explain a little bit of the background going on here. Obviously, we know there's tension between the Israelites and the Philistines. That's a little bit like between Russia and the Ukraine is right now. Except the Philistines are the ones who are like the Russians. The Philistines are far more advanced militarily. 
They're far more advanced organizationally. They're far more advanced technologically. The Israelites are the smaller, much weaker opponents. Now, this is the first time we've heard about the Philistines in the book of 1 Samuel, but it's not the first time we've heard about them in the Bible. Actually, they first showed up in Judges chapter 3 under the judgeship of Deborah. They were a seafaring people, and they came into the promised land from the oceans, and they landed on the coast and began to work their way eastward. By the time of the judgeships of Samson, which is later on in the book of Judges, they had actually grown a fair amount, and they were working their way inward because, you know, Samson really battled with the, the Philistines. So let me show you some geography to give you an idea how this takes place. Go ahead and put that first map up. This shows you where Shiloh is located. Shiloh has been what's gone on for the first three chapters with regard to um, Samuel. You can see where Ramah was, where he was originally born. You can get the idea of where that's located in the promised land. Now let's flip to the next one, if you could. This will show you where Aphek and Ebenezer are in relationship to Shiloh. Relatively close. So um, Shiloh is only 20 miles east of Ebenezer. The goal, quite honestly, I'll tell you, is um, that the Philistines are moving north, then they're going to be moving east. They are actually trying to get through Ebenezer militarily. They are going to try to overrun Shiloh and overthrow Shiloh because that will be completely demoralizing for the Israelites and will help them and the, help the Philistines in the future. It's a little bit like imagining if the Russians overran Washington, D.C., I mean, it would completely demoralize us as a country because uh, our seat of power would be destroyed. So that shows you what's going on. Give me the, the next slide, if you could. I put on here the five major Philistine cities just to show you how it all began on the coast when they came in. And then as they worked their way north to Aphek and then over as they're on their way to Shiloh. So that's a little bit of the background that's going on geographically at this point. Let's dive in and look at the first defeat. It begins with 1 Samuel uh, chapter 4, verse 2. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Now it says Israel was defeated that to me sounds like an understatement. 4,000 men were killed on the, on the field of battle. That is a lot of people. On September 11th, we lost 3,000. You know how demoralizing that was to our nation, how incredibly frustrating that was for us as a people. This is 1,000 more, and Israel is a much smaller nation. And I like to say it this way, they died the old-fashioned way. One sword thrust at a time. Very demoralizing. It continues. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us, and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, just as anybody should, when they face a time of tragedy and great loss, you should stop, you should reflect, and you should ask the question, why? Why did this happen to us? And the Israelites are asking, why were we defeated? But we need to remember that Israel is different from the other nations. Israel was God's chosen people. God had promised to bring them into the promised land. God had promised to protect them in the promised land. And God had in the past defeated enemies for them that were far greater than the Philistines. Like remember Egypt, the, the world's superpower that God brought to their knees through plague after plague after plague, finally swallowing the very armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea after God parted it, so God can certainly take care of protecting his people. The question is, why did he not this time? Why did they lose? 
In the past, they should have known every time they lose, it's usually because of an issue of sin. Sin among God's own people. But notice, they don't identify sin at this time. What they begin doing is they begin thinking, well, maybe it's because we didn't bring the ark of God with us. Instead of identifying sin and confessing sin, they decided what they need is the God box. And I put it down this way. The Israelites started treating the ark like it's almost a lucky rabbit's foot. They think, well, God resides in the box. If we can bring God in the box down to the battle, we'll definitely win. God will be with us, finally. Now, let me explain to you a little bit more about the ark for those of you who don't know um, what that looks like. Go ahead and put the ark up there if you could. Uh, this is a picture of the ark, and I guess I better stay in the middle, otherwise I'm not going to show up very well. Um, but the ark is a wooden box. It is four feet long, two feet wide, and two feet high. It is covered in gold. Um, inside of it are the Ten Commandments. Inside of it is a jar of manna, which was originally from the wilderness. Also, Aaron's rod that budded. On top of it, you can see are the two cherubim, which are angels. And God is said to be seated between the two cherubim. So their thought is, you know, we can now move God around by moving God's box around. But do you think God is going to be contained by a box? Do you think God be con can be controlled by a box? Uh, Terry is really smart here. He says, absolutely not. Of course not. And I put down here, there's a number of things the elders of the people failed to consider. Number one, every time Israel suffered defeat in the past, it was because of sin among God's people, not the superiority of an enemy. Every single time. Go back to the book right before this, the 200 years before this, the book of Judges. What happened? God people, God's people sinned. God raised up a nation around them to oppress them. And when they were defeated, they repented. They call out to God for rescue. God raised up a judge, and he delivered them. That was a cycle that kept going again and again. So when they were defeated, they should have instantly thought about sin among themselves. But they didn't. They said, we just need the God box. The other thing they didn't consider is this. The elders knew the, corruption, the corrupt behavior of Eli's sons. We've already seen this in the earlier chapters, that the corrupt behavior of Eli's sons is simply legendary. And um, they failed to make a connection between the sin of Eli and his sons and their defeat as a nation, when those two things will clearly go together. Number three, the elders also knew that God had promised to punish the house of Eli. We had seen this in chapter 2 where the man of God had come and prof prophesied to Eli that God was going to destroy him and his sons. And what was going to happen was something that was going to make everyone's ears tingle. It was going to be so bad. That happened again in the last chapter where Samuel prophesied the same thing. But they failed to make that connection. Here's what they failed to understand, and I'm going to give you a principle that's not just true in their time, but it's true in our time. So it's very 100% applicable for us. Here it is. When we sin, we will suffer. When we sin, we will suffer. Many times we think sin will make us happy. We think we tell a, a lie and we'll get ourselves out of trouble. It's not true. Sin always brings suffering. Happiness is only found through holiness. Satan is the father of lies. Satan brings death. I like to say it this way. When sin is the root, suffering will always be the fruit. That always goes that way. Suffering doesn't just, by the way, naturally flow out of sin, but sometimes when we sin, God intentionally and purposely brings suffering into our lives in order to correct us from our sin and to turn us away from our sin. 
which is exactly what God was doing in the book of Hebrews with the nation. We see this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Sometimes when suffering comes into our life, it's because God is trying to correct us from sin, turn us away from sin. Not every time, but sometimes that's what he does. It's very similar to a parent trying to correct a child. Like if you have a child that's insistent on putting a dinner fork into a wall outlet, you will not let them have their own way. You will correct them. You will correct them aggressively. Sometimes you will inflict pain upon them so they get the message that you do not stick a dinner fork into a wall outlet because you'd rather correct them and bring them pain now and turn them away from that sin than let them suffer the results of their sin. It all comes out of love. And God is the same way. Now what should we do when there is sin in our life? when that's the reason we face suffering in our life. How do we respond? 1 John 1, 9 is very clear about this. And it's the same thing that God's people should have done in the Old Testament. And here's the amazing promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that wonderful? We have such a forgiving God. And he cleanses us through Jesus once and for all. Now this is what the Israelites should have done. There's sin among us. We have to find it. We have to repent of it. We have to identify it. And God will be, will be in a right relationship with God. He's disciplining us. But no. No, all we need is the God box. Bring down the lucky rabbit's foot and we will win. And you can see that is very much their idea. Look at the way they phrase this. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us. Does an it, a box, save anyone? No. God is the one who saves people. Let's go to the second defeat. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant and the, of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. There's a reason that the author of 1 Samuel gives us this detailed description of the Ark, that God is enthroned on top of the cherubim. It's the idea that we're going to move God around. We're going to bring him where we need him. It's sort of like the Indiana Jones movie. Once we bring the ark of God among us, we'll become an army that is invincible, is what they are thinking. But here's what's interesting. Remember at the very beginning when we got to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and we studied Hannah's prayer? I told you in Hannah's prayer, the things she prays, she gives a whole number of themes that will weave throughout the rest of this book. Here's one of the things she talked about, the bigness of God. God cannot be contained in a box or controlled by a box. She said this about God in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Our God is much bigger than a box. Our God is suspending and controlling the entire planet. That's who he is. He is not limited to us. He is not controlled by us. And that's the point here. God cannot be manipulated or controlled by us. He can't. Now in the past, has God used the ark in somewhat miraculous ways? Oh, yes. I think it was Joshua chapter 3 when the priests put their, were carrying the ark and they put their feet in the Jordan River and the, and, the, and the water spread apart and people went across the Jordan River on dry land. That was not because the box was special. That's because God is special. And they got that wrong. They thought they could put God into a situation where he owed them something. And by the way, that's not just something that happened then. That's something that happens with us now. Like, maybe you're a businessman. You work hard. 
you serve in church, you give generously to the Lord, but subtly in the back of your mind you're saying, God, you owe me one because I'm good to you. Does he owe you anything? Absolutely not. He cannot be manipulated and controlled by us. Maybe you're a student who's in college. You say, God, I've, been, I've read my Bible every day this week. I was really nice to the girl who's down the hall from me. I, I was friendly to her. I'm going to take a test on Friday. I need to do well. You owe me one. No, he doesn't. He cannot be manipulated by us or controlled by us. He's much bigger than us. I'll tell you what we can do. Call out to God for mercy. Call out to God for grace. And call out to God for forgiveness. He can't be controlled by us. But he loves to give grace and mercy to us. That is the goodness of our God. We don't control him. We call out to him for rescue. And that is what he loves to bring. Now, what we should also notice here is the uh, two people who are carrying the ark. Hophni and Phinehas. Remember these guys? These are the ultimate and worthless brothers. They're called worthless men who do not know God. They're legendary for their sins, yet they're the priests. These are the guys who are stealing people's dinner with their big fork. They're stealing meat right off the God's altar. They're sleeping with women, and they're carrying the ark. Like, I'm surprised God didn't, like, electrocute them with a bolt of lightning, you know, early on in the story. But this is what the author wants us to notice. Look who's carrying this ark into battle. The ones who are really the cause for the defeat of the nation. You think this is going to work? Have a magic God box? Absolutely not. Now as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Yay, we're invincible. The ark is here. The earth is shaking. And we'll see in a moment, they yelled so loud with excitement that the Philistines, who are two miles away in Aphek, could actually hear them. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Now here's what's interesting to me. It's not just that the Israelites are excited by the arrival of the ark. The Philistines are terrified by the arrival of the ark. And I'm thinking, what do they have to be afraid of? They just finished defeating Israel in battle. There are 3,000 dead bodies of Israelites on the lawn. I mean, you couldn't even have time to bury these guys at this point. So what are you afraid of? It's the fact that there's memory of this ark. There's memory of the exodus. Now, this is multiple generations later. And sometimes you wonder, are all the things that happened at the exodus true? Is this all fancy tales? Here it is, generations later, that the enemies of the Israelites remember the exodus. They remember you know, the Nile turning to blood. They remember the flies. They remember the gnats. They remember the death of the firstborn in Egypt. They remember the nation the superpower in the world being brought to its knees. And as I said earlier, their army being swallowed in the Red Sea. They remember these things. So they are terrified. But what's the Philistines' response? We better fight harder. <laughs> we better work harder. And here's what happens. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30 thousand foot soldiers of Israel fell. You thought 4,000 was a lot of people. 30,000 is a much more people. 30 
10,000 in one day. And as I said, they died the old-fashioned way, one sword thrust at a time. Now, earlier I told you there's a strategy, what's going on in the background. It's not spelled out explicitly in the text, but just so you know, the Philistines are trying to get uh, up north. They're trying to work their way east, go through Ebenezer. They're trying to go to Shiloh. Their goal is to destroy Shiloh, which is the center of Israelite worship, to demoralize uh, the Israelites, to destroy and demoralize and capture their God is what their hope is. In the future, they are successful at this. They do destroy um, Shiloh. Let me show you. This comes in the Psalms. Psalm 78 says this, For he forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. 30,000 who died on that one day was just the beginning. Because as the Philistines go east, they will kill far, far more. It's a lot of devastation. A lot of death. And here else, what else happens? And the ark of God was captured. What a major discouragement. The ark that has the Ten Commandments in it. The ark that has the manna and Aaron's rod. The ark where God said to dwell between the cherubim is captured by the Philistines. Maybe in our world we would think of it this way. Putin overruns Washington, D.C., and then we see him on national television carrying the nuclear briefcase. That's sort of what it's like for the Israelites at this point. Also, it says the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. And here's what I want you to remember. In many ways... This whole sorry episode, all of this death, all of this devastation is in many ways tied to these two men and Eli, their father. Earlier I told you that there's a principle, a timeless principle, that when we sin, we will suffer. Let me give you another timeless principle that we need to absorb. It's this. When we sin, other people suffer. When we sin, other people suffer. In this battle, 34,000 people have died so far. The nation is defeated. The ark is captured. And it's primarily because of the sin of Eli and his two wicked sons. They sinned. Thousands of people died. And this is the message. When we sin, other people suffer. Oftentimes when we sin, the ones who suffer most are those we love the most. Those who are nearest to us, those who are closest to us, our spouse and children. And here's the other principle that goes with it. The greater the position of leadership we hold, the more people that suffer as a result of our sin. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were the priests for an entire nation over everyone else spiritually. Look at the devastation that happens. They say, really, is this true? That when we sin, other people will suffer? Give me some more evidence of this. Let's go to the book of Joshua. Remember when the Israelites went into um, the promised land? The first major city they ran across was Jericho a big walled city, a major city, no way for them to conquer this city. And to make the story short, they go around the city for seven days and they give a mighty shout. And what does God do with the walls? <laughs> Knocks all the walls down. The Israelites go in, destroy everything. And they're supposed to destroy everything, not just the people, but all the stuff. They win. Like, wow, that was great. But immediately after that, they go to a city called Ai, it's a much smaller city. They don't even send all the men. They go to just wipe it off the map. It should be a pushover. And that's not what happens. What happens is the city of Ai defends itself and actually 36 Israelites die in the battle. And Joshua does the right thing. If we're defeated, 
there's got to be something wrong, not with anybody else. It's with us. There's got to be sin in the camp. And they identify the sin in the camp, and it comes down to a man named Achan, a foot soldier who did not destroy things. He kept things. He kept gold bars. He kept silver bars. He kept a robe, and he buried it under his tent. And here's the point. When Achan sinned, 36 people died. Sin does not stay nicely compartmentalized into our life. It leaks into the lives of others. When Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas sinned, high-handedly, 34,000 people died. So I simply say this. Realize our sin never stays isolated. It always leaks, and it always influences others. So we've seen two defeats. Now let's look at two deaths. Eli died at Shiloh. And a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. In that day, when you wanted to find out the news, you needed to have a messenger come to you. I know this is hard for some of you young people to believe, but they couldn't text at the time. Uh, they also did not have social media to use to get the news, so you had to have physically somebody run into the city and tell you the news. They also had lookouts that would be on top of city walls that would always sort of look around to see if there was an attack on the city or a messenger coming to the city, and that's what a, the, the lookout would do in this case. And the lookouts would see a messenger coming, and they would try to guess the nature of the message by the way the messenger looked. And this is why the writer of 1 Samuel tells us the way this guy looked. He did not look good. His clothes were torn and his, he had dirt on his head. This is not going to be a good message. Uh, incidentally, this, is a, a, this guy who was the messenger, I personally think he was involved in CrossFit. You say, like, why would you say that? It says he ran the 20 miles from Ebenezer to Shiloh on the same day as the battle. By the way, that's all uphill. So this guy is like super major fit. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. So we switch back to Eli here for a moment. And notice it says he is sitting by the road. And I've told you earlier that the writer of, uh, author of 1 Samuel always pictures him sitting or in bed. He is absolutely doing absolutely nothing. The point that the author of 1 Samuel is trying to tell us is he is too old to lead. He should have retired a long time ago. He also says that he was watching by the road watching. I'm just going to hang that in your head for a moment. That's going to become very important in a moment, that he was watching. And the messenger runs past Eli into the city and announces the news. The city goes into an uproar that Hophni and Phinehas are dead, thousands of soldiers are dead. And then it says this, but when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is the uproar? Then the man hurried and came to Eli and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so he could not see. The author of the book of 1 Samuel wants us to read this stuff very carefully. The messenger made the announcement in the center of the city. Everybody has heard the announcement. Everybody's in an upcry. Everybody's talking about it. Could Eli hear it? Yes. Whoever said that, you're right. Do you think he's lost his hearing in his old age? I think he has. I think he's lost his hearing in his old age. He's real, I mean, he could hear, but somebody has to come close to him and yell at him. Yeah. So he, his hearing is not that good at this point. And then it says this. Remember, he was by the gate watching but here we learn he was blind. His eyes were set so he could not see. So he acts like he's leading and looking for the messenger, but is he actually able to see the messenger? 
No, he is blind. So he's acting like he's large and in charge, and he's too old to be large and in charge, is what he's telling us. He can't hear, and he can't see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who's come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. What kills Eli is not the news of his son's dying. He expected that. He'd been told that prophetically. What kills him is when he hears that the ark is captured. He passes out almost, it seems like, falls over backwards and breaks his neck. And then the author of 1 Samuel tells us two things that were contributory towards his death. His great age, which we've already seen, he can't see and probably can't hear well, and his great weight. You guys ready for a little bit of Jewish humor? Here we go. 1 Samuel 2.29, we read that Eli and his sons have been fattening themselves on all the choice portions of meat. Meat they stole off of God's altar and meat they stole out of other people's places. The Hebrew word for heavy here, he says he was old and heavy, can be translated into English as massive. This boy is large, very, very large. And he's become large because he has been eating all of this stolen meat, stealing meat from God and from people. Interestingly, in Hebrew, the word, particular word used here for for heavy, in the word for glory, are very similar. The author chose that word for heavy, making it very similar to the word for glory. In other words, the only glory and fame that Eli will be remembered for is he was massively large because he fattened himself by eating other people's stolen meat. And what killed him was his size, that when he fell over and broke his neck. The author of, of this book wants us to realize there's a sense of poetic justice here, isn't it? The only thing he's going to be remembered for is his size, and what killed him was his weight. That is what he's trying to tell us. Now, it also says this. He judged Israel for 40 years. That's a long time. Like in the book of Judges, I can assume that God raised him up to be a judge and that he did good for a, quite some time. But here's the point. He finished poorly. He died. His sons died. 34,000 of the Israelites so far have died. The ark has been captured. It was a good way to start life but it was a terrible way to finish life. And the only glory he's going to be remembered for is his incredible size that he fattened himself on stolen meat. How did he get there? Folks, this is the point that we can take for application. The way to ruin our life and our legacy is one small step at a time. Or in Eli's case, you could say, one small bite at a time. That's exactly what happened to him. What this means, folks, is little choices are what make a big difference in life. It's what you choose to think about in your hearts that become the actions of your life. It's the actions of your life that becomes the habits of your life. The habits of your life become the lifestyle. The lifestyle leaves your legacy. If you tolerate sin in little areas of your life, it'll eventually grow to overtake your life. 
Galatians says it this way, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will, be all, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The small choices are those things that you choose to put into your heart and into your mind that no one else knows about but you. They will lead into your actions because your thoughts will determine your actions. Your actions will determine your lifestyle, which leads to your legacy. I want to ask you, what are you putting into your brain right now? What are the things that you are choosing to think about and chew on your own quiet time? What is the junk that you're pouring into your head from your phone? What are you looking at on TikTok? What kind of things are you looking at on Snapchat? What are you looking at on the way of videos when you're by yourself on YouTube? What are you Googling? You're just thinking about it, just, just, just wondering about it, but your thoughts, your thoughts will determine your actions. Those little things, little choices, are what end up making a big difference in life. Paul says in Philippians 4, think on only thoughts that are pure, that are wholesome, that are honorable. Guard your thoughts. Proverbs says this, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the spring of life. Well, we've looked at two defeats. We've looked at one death. Let's look at one more death. It was the birth of Ichabod. We'll go through this one very quickly. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. When she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth. For her pains came upon her, and about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son but she did not answer or pay attention because she's about ready to lose her life in her labor. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Ichabod in Hebrew means glory has departed. And since she repeats this twice, I'm going to make this sort of educated guess. More grievous to her than the death of her husband and her father-in-law was that the ark was captured. And that God's glory, who had been among his people, was departed. Here's the last little lesson we give you on sin. We've already learned that when we sin, we will suffer. When we sin, other people suffer. And here, when we sin, we lose the peace and joy in our relationship with God. It feels like God's glory has departed. The illustration of that I, comes a little bit later. It comes out of 2 Samuel. Remember uh, David? David who ended up murdering Uriah after he slept with Bathsheba? And he holds on to that sin for a long period of time. When he finally confesses it in Psalm 51, look what he says. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Why I kept my sin and hid my sin, my joy of my salvation and my experience of your Holy Spirit, your closeness was gone. It was like God's glory had departed from him, he felt. Well, let me give you the summary of the applications. Number one, sin always brings suffering. When we sin, we suffer. Also, other people suffer and our relationship with God suffers. Always happens every time. Number two, the way to ruin our life and legacy is always just one small step at a time. It's the little choices that end up making a big difference. Number three, 
God cannot be manipulated for our purposes. You cannot move the God box around and make God do what you want for him, for yourself. But here's the last thing I'd like to say. God loves us. He offers to replace our Ichabod with Emmanuel. I don't know what may be going on in your life right now. I don't know what kinds of sins that you have been holding on to, that you have been wrestling with. And you are probably, if you're holding on to those things, you're in a time that's pretty dark in your life. You feel like it's Ichabod, that God's glory and God's presence has departed. I want to encourage you, confess your sin. We already saw God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God loves you so much that he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to be with us. He sent Emmanuel to take away our sins so our sins would no longer have to create separation between us and God. But Jesus would bring us back to God. If you're in a time right now of darkness with your sin, your Ichabod, call out to Emmanuel. God will forgive you, restore you, and bring you home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, study. We thank you that we learned about sin and how sin ends up just bringing suffering to ourselves, to others, and even in frustration in our relationship with you, Heavenly Father. Thank you also for Jesus that forgives us of our sin. We also thank you for the amazing lesson that... um, Lord, it's always the little steps, the little steps that end up making a big difference over time. May we be people who follow wholeheartedly after you, and we thank you for your word. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.